Good afternoon and good evening, folks, and welcome to another session of Career Talks. I'm your host, Orlando Haynes. Uh, super excited, as always, each and every week. Again, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with some trendsetters, some dynamic individuals uh, throughout career development, HR, diversity and inclusion. Um, and I'm super excited about this, this conversation uh, with this young lady who I met on LinkedIn, obviously, and dive into the history her role, some of the struggles um, with her, her her position and how that all plays out. Uh, so I have Tanya Gibson with us tonight and she is the VP of, check this title, JEDI, which stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. But she's also the VP of HR for Big Brothers and Big, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. So, and the whole purpose, what I wanna dive into this conversation is um, her, what she looks at is the struggles of balancing that with this organization. And hopefully we can expand that conversation, how that looks across the board with folks that may share a similar title. So, um, and correct me if I'm wrong in, in any part of that intro, Tanya, as I bring you on. So let's welcome um, Ms. Tanya Gibson. Thank you. Thank you so much, Orlando. And you are correct. It is VP of JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and HR. I also always like to make sure uh, within my title uh, that I also identify my pronouns, which are she, her, and hers. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So first and foremost, uh, thank you for doing this and share a little more about your backstory um, and your, you know, your role with the organization, and then we can dive in. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been with Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. Uh, initially, my role for the last, I would say, three years was Director of Human Resources. So um, I've always had, I'll call it, a foray into the world around diversity and inclusion, and I'm sure a lot of HR professionals who are listening to this conversation can relate that most often for us in the HR profession, uh, as a part of our work in compliance and legalities around you know, EEO work, right, equal employment opportunity work, we've always had a sense of, of looking at human resources from the guise of the most qualified individual, right, and not looking at necessarily any uh, visible characteristics that are legally protected, whether that be race, ethnicity, religion, so on and so forth. Um, and so about, I would say, two years ago, my, my former um, boss, Pam Iorio, who was the leader of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, came to me with this uh, idea of not only could I lead our HR work, but she also asked me, would I be able to lead our diversity and inclusion work? And I want to give a lot of credit to our local agencies who, even before the, the last two years of me leading this work, we have been in our DNI work, a lot of great work has been done locally with our agencies around focusing on our, the communities that we serve, which are predominantly from a national scope. Um, we consider them BIPOC individuals, which is, stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and Youth of Color specifically. So we've been doing a lot of great work when it comes to race and ethnicity. We have a great um, leader in our LGBTQ space. But I'm um, my boss felt that it was very important to have a leader who could align the strategic vision of the work and give more support and guidance when it came from a national organization. So the last two years, I was the VP of DEI. So that's how we started our journey with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we added equity even at that time, and we felt that was innovative because a lot of organizations weren't focusing on the equitable outcomes of the work. 
but with um, the unfortunate killing of many uh, folks who look like you and I, right, who identify mm -hmm. as a black individual in this country or a person of color in this country, we felt very strongly because our origin story is founded off of justice, right? We, 117 years ago, criminal court clerk named Ernest Coulter founded this organization as an innovative alternative to the criminal justice system for our young people. And so our origin has always been rooted in justice. And so we wanted to make sure that we made a bold statement, um, re-engaging the communities around Big Brothers Big Sisters for them to, to relearn and reimagine the work uh, that was founded over 117 years ago around our justice work. And so that's when we changed our acronym around to include justice. And so that's where uh, the, the Jedi uh, language comes from. It's always been a part of Big Brothers Big Sisters. And so I want to give credit again to our local agencies been doing it for a long time. But it's always been who we've been about. And so I just get the honor to be a part of that work, um, help to align the vision, build and collaborate with our partners throughout this country who every day are working with our young people to inspire and empower them through equitable outcomes through our one-to-one -one plus mentoring programs. Love it, love it. So um, with that, and the first question I have would be, if any, what new programs came around now that the justice became the forefront uh, of that JEDI acronym that's been implemented since you've been there um, or looking to implement uh, that will kind of push that narrative forward to where um, you, you, you're looking for a greater impact for people of, of color. Yeah, so we all of our programs are, are rooted in that work, right? But specifically to your question around what newer program have we implemented recently uh, that specifically speaks to our justice work was in March of this year, um, through a great partnership with our longstanding partner with the Starbucks Foundation, we implemented what we call the Relationship Responder Social, Social Justice Response Unit in partnership with one of our local uh, Black-owned uh, nonprofits with, through the partnership of expert Dr. Tori Wieston-Surden and her Center for Critical Mentoring and Youth Work. And so we created and rolled out this program of Social Justice Response Units through the Relationship Responders Program, which is specifically designed to help provide ongoing support to our agencies through a variety of different methods of trained professionals, some of whom work within the national office where I um, work out of, as well as our local agency leaders, some of whom are who work in program fund development, some of our leaders um, for different agencies, we're all being trained in this social justice response incident unit. So what that program really um, entails is if an incident, so let's say recently we saw that there were a higher prevalence of mass shootings that occurred, right? Um, some of which were individual shootings that folks lost their lives or were harmed, or we saw um, the, the unfortunate incident in Colorado as an example. So in a situation like one of those incidents that arise, a trained professional like myself, who's a part of that relationship responders unit, would work with Dr. Tori Wieston-Surden and her group in conjunction with the affected community that, that would have that incident and provide them with ongoing support um, through convenings right now virtually, but hopefully at some point safely we'll be able to be able to travel to a location and have on-site facilitation conversations, uh, work with our volunteer mentors with whom we call bigs, as well as the families and the mentees, which we call littles, to provide them with support, answering questions, uh, building you know, conversation starters if it's a situation that 
you know, maybe the big and the family may not understand how to talk with that young person about what's happening and then be able to provide solutions and ongoing support through local partnerships with other organizations for services that maybe aren't specifically mentoring, but are tied in to be able to help support that community that's dealing with that incident. And so we've been doing that similarly in, in Minneapolis with our agency there that has had an onslaught, unfortunately, of incidents that has predicated this relationship responders unit to be able to do just that, to provide them with healing, um, trauma-informed care practices and conversations, and then ongoing support and resources that we then share out to our entire Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Because just because it happens in one community, we don't wanna just concentrate and focus all of that great resource support for just that community. We wanna be able to make sure that all of those resources are available to everyone throughout the Big Brothers Big Sisters community, which is over 5,000 communities across this country. Oh. Wow. So what, what does that look like in terms of conversations that you're having with organizations that, that you're wanting to partner with, um, again, to get this message across? Because you mentioned Starbucks, correct? Or was it a different? Yes, the Starbucks. Okay. So what, what does that look like to say, OK, here's, here's Big, uh, Big Brothers, uh, Big Sisters of America. You know our narrative. We found it since 1904. Uh, we're not changing. We're this is our this is our lane where we we focus on. And what are the expectations you have for uh, another corporation to partner? And who's leading those types of conversations to say, where's the synergy between us? And does this make sense? That's a fair question. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we grapple with that as an organization. Uh, even now with our, our new leader, Artist Stevens, uh, when he came on board, those were all conversations that we had to determine, what does it look like when we have conversations with partners nationally, right? And we have seen an uptick in a lot of corporations making those statements, right? We saw a lot of that that happened right after George Floyd was murdered and, and some other folks where statements were made and then wh where's the action, where's the work? And so we similarly wanted to question ourselves and ask, okay, how are we going to not only internally do the work because this is work, uh, but also to ask that of our partners or potential partners. And so the conversations that we have um, are throughout the organization, specifically with our resource development department um, and those folks that every day are out talking with partners or the partners that may want to have those conversations. I'm a part of uh, many of those conversations. So most often I'm either in an introduction <laughs> and or follow up conversations with those partners. And of course, our leader, Artist Stevens, is always a part of those conversations. And we share that information with our staff and our board as well. We're very transparent around prospects and organizations that want to work with us for the right reasons. And so through our core values, which stand for, which is big, which stands for belonging, inclusion, intentional, and genuine, we want to look at those core values to say, are we ensuring that the corporate partners or foundations that want to work with us or that we have worked with, do they align with our values of being a Jedi-focused youth empowerment organization? Are they doing this for the right reasons? And we do question that. And we question that of our partners. And we're very thankful for the partners that we have that similarly understand our Jedi focus, understand youth empowerment and equity for our young people. And so those conversations are happening all the time. We have lots of different advisory councils that also provide insight and inform those decisions. Um, so it's really a group effort, right? But um, I, I am definitely very much involved in conversations. And uh, my partner, uh, I'd like to say my success partner, 
our chief development officer, chief marketing officer, Adam Vassallo, uh, is and his whole team from the resource development department. We spend a lot of time looking at those partnerships and holding those conversations with one another. And, and before I ask the next question, I do have to apologize to uh, you, Tanya, and everyone that I have a misspelled <laughs> her last name. I have misspelled her last name. Oh. I B S O N. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so no, that I, did, I did not even see that until you said it. I've been just engaged in the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, my next question, and and I love that how you you go about. And, and, and utilizing the big acronym to make sure that they align with um, the entire core value of the of Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, what what does what does it look like from a standpoint when you identify and, and, and let me know if this is a fair question as well that companies are looking for to partner with you um, that are that their intentions are not pure. It's 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 merely a market employee to kind of boost their brand because your the organization has been at the forefront for so long um, in you know driving tough conversations and dealing with youth and development you know like hey like because there there are companies out there that just want to partner uh, for, for lack of a better term have there been instances where I guess the sheep became the wolf later on and you had to like dissolve that relationship. You're like, okay, this is not what we thought. Uh, and let me know if that's, if we could pass on that, you can feel free to pass. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I'll be very honest with you, right? It's just us mm -hmm. in the room. Um, you know, we've had conversations with organizations and, and they ask it of us. I think we look at it truly as a partnership. So I'll be honest with you. I think every partner that we've had conversations with, has come to the table with, with the right answers, right? Similarly with us, we're not a perfect organization, right? So every time we've had a conversation with an organization that may not, that we may not understand that fully aligns, we dig a little bit deeper and we probe to understand where they're coming from. And I think that honesty and authenticity of partnerships is so important. We have seen a shift even in, in some of our current partners where maybe 12 months ago, they had a very different alignment, but I do think that the, the movement of the workforce in general has shifted minds a lot. And so a lot of our, our uh, legacy partners and even potential partners are very similarly aligned, right? I think everyone can get behind the idea of mentorship because even as adults, we look at that in the workforce, right? There are a lot of organizations that have mentorship or sponsorship programs. So I do think any partner that may come to the table has the right intention and it is our job as an organization to share in that alignment and see where we may not necessarily have all the pillars together. I think all of our partners very much so um, align themselves to the Jedi a construct, right? Mm -hmm. They understand its importance. And I think it's, it's you know, thanks to a lot of really brave and courageous workforce uh, employees over the last, you know, six to nine months who've said, you know, we want something different in our organization. We want to see that purpose-driven work really, no matter what organization and industry they're representative, they want their leadership to be able to align to those values. And it just so happens that everyone can get behind youth development and empowerment because we were all once young people. So I, I can't say that there's been a partner where we have automatically said, absolutely not, because I do think that there has been a shift 
in the way that the industry is now responding to this work in a much more authentic and um, synergistic way. Yeah. And so with that, because uh, I, I see, right, Big Brothers, Big Sisters as the SME in that one-on-one -on -one mentoring with youth, ha have you seen where your partnership influenced the partner, uh, not only to just come in at one level, but you've seen them shift their focus, core values to take a bigger approach in that space, rather it just be an arm of the organization upon you know the first conversation in partnership but now it's become uh, almost they've taken your sop and like we need to be this because we see the value long term yeah you know that's a really great question i'm i i don't know if i can if accurately say that because i don't work for those organizations but my assessment would be definitely that every organization has come partnering with us because they already have found that value and they see that alignment. They mm -hmm. see that this is not just for us a one-off or an ancillary program, right? They understand that by the work that we're doing, we don't say that we're a Jedi-focused youth empowerment organization as a line or a mantra. They can see that authentically playing out every day locally, wherever they, that partnership may you know, be headquartered. And by virtue of seeing that natural, authentic work that's happening from our local agencies, then they will come to us and say, we love the work that's happening locally. Let's say that's Atlanta or Seattle or you know, Des Moines, Iowa, wherever it may mm -hmm. be. And then they come to the national organization and say, we wanna be a part of this in, and, and multiply it and scale that to make sure that every community is receiving that same level of authenticity and, and that community partnership and engagement and mobility for young people and make sure that that's happening no matter where you live. So that that's what I at least am seeing from organizations that they're seeing what's happening on the ground locally and they wanna become a part of that because they themselves are finding value in it because they may also be going through the same work that we're going through is looking from within ourselves, how can we be better as an organization? And then by doing that work internally, it, it changes who you are as an organization. And then you want to be able to share that wealth, whether it be financially, whether it be through the support of volunteering um, or some other capacity, or maybe it's both. It's a both end. Got it. Got it. I understand. So now let, let's uh, let's take it a little closer to home and let's talk about a, a day in the life of Tanya Gibson and, and what you uh, you know deal with on a day to day basis in this role. What does that look like? Yeah, you know what? That's such a great question. I feel like it's an interview question, right? We ask that of our candidates. So my day-to-day, -day, and this is, I think, true for anyone in DNI or mm -hmm. anyone in HR, and for many of us now who are HR folks who now have been given this extra responsibility of, of diversity, equity, inclusion, you can relate. Um, it, there, it is never a dull moment, but I will be honest and truthful, right? Uh, my HR work was never what I would consider uh, triggering or traumatic or exhausting, right? I could, I was able to compartmentalize that work because it was more, you know, policies, procedures, being able to guide folks and be a strategic business partner, operationalizing, adding on that extra element of now also being responsible for the strategic work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Uh, that added responsibility has added uh, an additional of trauma that I sometimes have to self-nourish and self-care and, and take a step back. 
Um, it can be very messy. It can be very challenging when you're, you're up against folks who may not agree with this work and don't understand, well, why are we talking about this, right? We, you know, ev everything was fixed a long time ago, right? When I um, have to engage in those more challenging conversations with folks, I like to call them those dis the disruptors. Um, th those days can be more trying and challenging, right? But I would say it is it is in the spirit of the young people that I know my work is affecting indirectly and maybe even to some extent directly that I push through. But every day is unique, um, especially on days when there are incidents happening in this country and I need to be on and be able to support and provide those resources that I do find myself really having to juggle a lot and be there uh, in those moments of emotion and empathy uh, that can be draining. But I, I will say that I would not um, want it any other way. I am someone who is an overachiever. I always want it to be better than whatever the actual final product was. And because of that, it keeps me going. It allows me to know that the work that I'm doing to support young people is, is the most important piece. So no matter how I may be feeling day to day and the work may be a lot some days or messy or whatever that adjective may be, I know ultimately that it's for the young people that are in our communities every day that I'm fighting for, that I am working alongside and partnering with. And I wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest. Awesome. So I wanted to uncover something you said there. You said um, in, in the times where there's trauma, like we, we, we point to the George Floyd incident because it was the, the most recent and uh, that got the most impact in terms of you know global or at least within the United States. Um, on that. And so when it happened, what was that like talking to internal employees um, of color dealing with that or um, our white counterparts? What does that look like? And then with the verdict coming um, and what looks like justice being served, um, I'm not sure if I've seen the sentence come out just yet. Um, what is that conversation like uh, for folks who were like, wow, um, mm. it's justice now turning in our favor and in our favor, obviously, of people of color um, dealing with uh, police specifically around what's been happening in that, um, in that, I guess, you know, racial pandemic, uh, so to speak. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that. In your role, as your role, what do you deal with when it comes to those types of things? So taking a step back to the first part of your question, what was it like um, with the incident, I I do have memories of it, so I try to you know think as much as I can for this answer. But it was it was very hard personally. Um, my son, you know, I'm raising a teenage boy, black male in this country, so that was a hard hard weekend. I remember it was Memorial Day weekend, and and hearing the news reports at the time, I was you know myself trying to unpack what was happening, and you know you get those news reports and you kind of wonder, okay, well. Where's the whole story, right? So I, I had to take my space personally, and then my professional hat came on. Okay, how how do we manage it? Kind of like crisis communications for folks who may be marketing people um, who are, are used to that. And I remember texting our my boss at the time, Pam, and being like, you know, something's happening. What's going on? We, we probably need to to talk about this, right? But I obviously I didn't know at the time how big it would be. But as the weekend progressed and we got into the week and things were, you know, news was coming through, 
I, I recognize this was different, right? And as, as we saw the protests starting to happen, um, my HR hat then went on, right, immediately. And I said, okay, we, we need to have some kind of conversation. And we hold uh, in our organization what we call staff check-ins. And so it was our way for the pandemic to get together as a staff and just talk and, and still be in, in commune with one another, right? And so that staff check-in, I do remember I was driving home that day because I had to go to the office and I broke down on the call, you know, and I, I had that emotional vitriol response of like, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm mad. Um, and and I, I did not hold, hold my professional hat on at that moment because it was real, right? The emotion was real. And I felt it was very important for the staff that was on that call to hear the reality and the humanity behind this work, right? It's not just about let's, you know, put a staff meeting together, put out a statement, talk about it. That was a real moment for me. And staff members similarly had sim similar responses on that call. And then when we got to the next week, we held an all staff meeting and we had um, for the first time a non-agended staff meeting. We had no real preparation. We didn't know what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like. And my my boss is a white woman right at the time. And she admitted, you know, I, I don't know what to say. And I don't feel it's my place in this moment in time in history to be the one to lead and facilitate this conversation. And I felt that that was such an honest and self-aware moment for her to say, even as our as the leader of this mm -hmm. staff and this organization, it is not my place to try and talk through this with our staff. So I held the, the staff meeting, we talked, there were tears, there was emotion, and my white colleagues also similarly had emotions, right? But in that moment, they did not, um, they did kind of what we tell people in best practices. They weren't trying to justify anything. They weren't asking questions. Many of them did not talk. They were just there, they sat, they listened, and they supported, right? In, in, in their own way. Yeah. And that is what um, I'd recommend for anybody else that is trying to facilitate these conversations, especially if you are the person of color who's also responsible for having to be that support for others is make sure that you have the kind of workforce that's authentic enough to hold that space for folks. Do not demand any more emotionally of your black, brown, indigenous staff members. Do not ask them to you know, share if they don't wanna share. Just be there and listen and support. And that's what it has been for the past nine months since the initial staff meeting. We have we, we talk when we when we need to. We've held space. We did it similarly after the trial verdict came in, as we just said, we're just gonna hold space for everybody. It's not gonna be an agenda. You don't need to come if you don't want to, because that emotional labor I want to be very um, transparent with can be very rough mm -hmm. because over and over and over again, oftentimes black and brown folks are the ones who are asked to be the expert, to be the subject matter expert in all things for your community. And that's that's damaging, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't ever we don't ever ask a staff member to share if they don't want to share. You don't you don't need to come if you don't want to come. You don't need to say anything if you don't want to say anything. And we offered that up similarly with the trial. I'm sure we will do that again um, when when a sentence comes down. Um, and we've continued to hold that space. Uh, in other ways, in smaller group settings for staff members that that have not felt comfortable to share. 
And I think that's really important for folks who may be listening to this conversation that that emotional labor is different for everybody and shows up in different ways and at different times. And so um, if your workforce is not there yet, do not try and replicate what I just shared with you, <laughs> because ultimately that's going to be damaging for, for the folks that are in the organization. But if your organization is at, at that place, it's definitely something I'd recommend doing um, when it's appropriate for your workforce. And I love that. And, and I do have a follow-up question, which you, you just kind of alluded to. Do you think it's easier for an organization to approach it the way um, you do, you did in doing uh, when there's um, African-American leadership versus it's predominantly white leadership and they may not have a clue how to or feel that it's ingenuous um, to approach it in that fashion. Just, just the thought that came to me the way you, the way you uh, responded. Yeah, you know, I have a really great colleague um, whose name is Jared Carroll, um, who's a white gentleman who is in this space. And I've had conversations with him on, on my what we call Triple R webinar, where I asked him that same question <laughs> uh, as a white person in, in predominantly uh, black and brown spaces around our DNI work. You know, how, how do you as a white person, right, uh, be able to hold space? And I do think to your question, Orlando, that for, for our, our white success partners and co-conspirators, if, if your organization is predominantly white and or leadership is predominantly white and you may have um, a leader in this space who it identifies as white, who is asked to, to be that party to hold space, it really does depend, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think our organization is still working through that. So I do think folks are a lot more comfortable because of how I look and how I present. Mm -hmm. um, to be more comfortable as a, a person of color in the organization to be able to share. I'm not sure if, if a white counterpart was leading this work, if it would be that way. But for those folks who know that you, you, you want to say something and don't know what to say, what I will say is that's why we have so many wonderful DNI practitioners out there and consultants that can help guide that work. Um, just, it does not need to be a person of color it needs to be someone who knows how to do this work the right way. And that's what's most important. If you're a, a white person, and, and I have a really great um, white counterpart, Hillary Bardwell, who leads our LGBTQ work. And I would see Hillary as someone that could lead this work around race and ethnicity conversations in a way that is empathetic, that is supportive, and she would know how to listen and talk less, right? And I think that for many of us, and I'll speak for myself as a DNI practitioner, that's really what we're looking for. We're not looking for someone to try and, you know, mansplain it essentially. We're looking for someone to listen, to empathize, to acknowledge, to be self-aware and do the work. This is, this is daily work. It is work that all of us need to unpack because we all have biases in our own elements of DNI. Um, for race and ethnicity work specifically, I do think there is a lot more credence to folks who identify as a person of color because we all have lived experiences that many of our white counterparts, not saying our white counterparts don't have struggles and have not faced barriers and inequities and disparities. But I do think a lot of times in the race conversations, there is something about a DNI practitioner who's a person of color who can provide insights 
that in, in many instances, our white counterparts are still trying to learn and unpack, right? And that's just, that's, I think, the real and honest answer. I think anyone can do this work well, but I do think if you are someone who has not had a lived experience of um, some of the isms around, you know, if it's ableism, sexism, um, when we talk about racism specifically, mm -hmm. it's more of a challenge to find that credibility. And I'm sure you notice this uh, being in the um, DNI space that the moment the George Floyd incident happened, there was a slew of diversity and inclusion opportunities opening up uh, within organizations. It was like 90% HR diversity, you know, director positions all over the country. It was like, my first thought was, okay, is this a check box that corporate is doing uh, to get someone in there to say, hey, we are a part of this, you know, this movement and we hear your cry and we hear your pain. And then to your earlier point, the second thing is, yes, the statements look good, uh, well-crafted from a corporate standpoint, but putting these key people in place, are you doing it again just to check the box or will you give them the autonomy to make change in the organization. Where's the, where's the follow-up? Um, I haven't seen much as to, and it's great. And, and it's great when you see all the posts, especially on LinkedIn, this person, first African-American woman to, to be placed in this role and that role, gentlemen. And I still think it's, is it to check a box uh, for corporate America uh, to say we partner with you? And again, is it six months? A year from now to where we'll start to see what's been implemented, what organizations are really making change. And yes, some are out there who are putting, and this is more on the entrepreneurial side where they're putting money into, you know, black small businesses and things like that to, to fund that, which is great. But um, again, is it is it just for show? My, my question, right? So uh, I'll ask that question to you. And you can answer it just as Tonya or as a DNI practitioner. Uh, do you do you feel corporate America um, did that as a temporary checkbox move? Yeah, the honest answer is, and we have I see this debate quite often. So my answer is, I think there are. It was definitely in response to the workforce saying, what, what are you XYZ organization going to do about this problem that's existed since the beginning of, of industry, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think there was an immediate uh, reactive response. My hope is that it's not a check the box activity, but I have to tell you, and seeing some of the job postings that I've seen out there for, you know, a chief diversity officer, or DNI this, or, you know, whatever, acronym you want to use to describe this work, what I have seen a high, high prevalence of is these job descriptions are still being written in a way that it's not allowing for the, the true experts in the field to be qualified to do this work. Mm. So, and what I mean by that is you'll see, okay, we want a chief diversity officer who's, you know, have proven success implementing like XYZ robust, comprehensive DNI strategy with XYZ, you know, amounts of staff and you know, 15 years of experience and have a degree in this. And my question automatically is why? Where where did you get the, those job duties as being a successful DNI person? 
right? That to me is the biggest question. And when I see those kinds of job descriptions, and I've seen many of them, is who are the people who are writing this? Because if, if you don't have this expert in your office today, the person who's writing that job description is most likely, my other, my HR hat comes on, is an HR professional who in many instances has zero understanding, knowledge, and skill in DNI work. So you can't put out a job that you don't you, yourself understand, right? So again, my earlier point of go find a DNI consultant who can give you some guidance in this work before you go looking for the expert who you most often are not going to give the resources, meaning staff and or financial support from a budget to be able to do all of these things that you put in this beautiful job description that looks really great. And that's why you've also seen to your question, Orlando, around, is it performative? It probably is because we're now starting to see the data and results of all of these job postings of folks who get into that job and six to nine months now are leaving in mass exodus because they came into an organization and were not given any of the tools and support to be able to do the work that they know that they need. And I air quote that, that mm -hmm. just may have been a reaction to their workforce saying, well, what are you doing to be able to support this work? And, and I think that's where the problem really is, right? If these organizations say they wanna do this work, then they've gotta put people in the position that understand how to do that. And, and that's not writing a job description from an HR person who has no experience. I'd much rather see them say, we don't have the right answers. We're working with this small, you know, minority owned company, um, you know, in DNI who gets it to help us to figure out what it is that we need. And when we're ready, then we will build a leader. We will place a leader from within our organization who can then be supported by that consultant to work on this, right? I, I meant what I said, this is work. It is work for us as DNI practitioners who are doing this every day. And it needs to be work from organizations to recognize you don't have all the answers. Don't put out a job description when you yourself know you don't know what you're doing. That That's disingenuous and it's, it's not gonna be fruitful. And we're now starting to see that happen to a lot of folks who take these jobs. Wow. Wow. That's pretty powerful. So let's let's um, and we can talk about this forever, but um, <laughs> <laughs> let's shift towards some of the um, the wins and the triumphs uh, that you've experienced and are experiencing um, in your in your role with the organization. Yeah, I would definitely say a win for us is the honesty factor. Um, before May of last year, I would be honest with you and say a lot of my DNI work was very surface level. It was still trying to be foundational, meaning we were still trying to build out a roadmap, figure out what the strategy and vision was. But I think we took a more measured, structured approach to the work. And then we had to kind of get real, right? I think the social justice movement over the summer of last year taught us that you can't sit and wait for things to happen. And although measured and structured is, is me, I'm a type A person. I like my checklist. I want to know what the end goal is. Equity work doesn't have an end goal, right? I'm, I'm not going to be able to solve the issues of racism for my organization because my organization didn't create racism. But what I can solve for is how, what systems do we put in place? What barriers to access are we creating as an organization 
And how can we then shift our work to ensure that we dismantle those systems, right? That's my job. And so the wins, I would say, is, is looking at ourselves and saying, we don't have all the answers. We don't have the playbook to be able to solve for every single issue and disparity. But we've been able to look at ourselves and build out those core values I mentioned earlier. We've been able to um, work and partner with some wonderful DEI consultants I mentioned earlier um, and partner in new and innovative ways through that relationship responders um, program that we talked about earlier in this conversation. Um, and I would say some other ones that we haven't fully devised yet, but we have a strategic frame in mind. Um, one thing that I'm, I'm really, really proud of is our youth advisory council that we're forming right now. And it's funny, we're a youth development organization, but over the last 117 years, we've not looked at our, our young people as a part of that informing those solutions, right? We've always looked at it as how can we, the adults in the room, build out great partnerships and programs and access for our young people to be able to utilize and benefit from. But we've not really asked our young people how they can inform those decisions and partner with us. And so I'm really proud that we've, we you know, figured it out 117 years later, we figured it out that let's ask our young people what they think. How are they going to help inform these decisions? Um, and similarly, working with other experts, um, we're forming a Jedi Advisory Council of other folks who can help me and support me. I think that's a really critical uh, achievement and a win for us to say, we, again, don't know it all. We, we think we do, but in partnership with other folks that are working in this work, have a lot more expertise and resources, help inform us as we move through uh, the work of every day of mentoring young people. And then I'd say the final uh, win um, is, is looking at that language around JEDI and leading with that and not making it a separate program. Um, you know, I'm not kind of locked away in my office and doing my own thing over here with DNI work and every now and again I come out and I'm sharing. It is integral, foundational, it is a part of all of the work that we do. And we weren't using that language 12 months ago. We were doing it, most certainly. But I think positioning ourselves to really own who we've always been, which is an innovation to the criminal justice system for our young people and leading with our Jedi work and saying, this is who we've always been. Let's reintroduce ourselves to the folks that maybe didn't know Big Brothers Big Sisters has always been doing this work. I think for me, that's been a real win because it's allowed me to have conversations with folks like you and, and the LinkedIn community that's listening this evening um, and be able to share the stories of young people. Um, not just, you know, the, the typical stories folks may think about our work, but just an everyday young people who may have had challenges in their lives, like all of us have had, um, maybe some more or some less, and being able to share their stories in a way that allows people to kind of open their minds up to the opportunities of, of being a part of the work of mentorship. We all, I'm sure, can relate to having a mentor in your life at one point or another. So I'm really proud that we're leading with that work um, as a part of the foundation of mentorship. So um, definitely want to learn a little bit more about that youth advisory board and council that you're putting together. Um, and let me know if this question makes sense. When it comes to developing new programs like that and implementing them, and you're, the model of Big Brothers Big Sisters is you have centers all over the country, what does that look like when you're implementing it and how do you measure success um, 
when it's pushed out throughout the entire organization? What's that timeline to say, okay, this, this is going to look like 18 months before it's in all locations. We'll give it another six months and I'm just throwing out uh, timelines before mm-hmm. we think it should be implemented, absorbed and executed. And then we should be getting feedback by X time frame. Yeah. So one thing I will say is we're, we're not just centers, right? We're in communities across the country. So mm-hmm. that's, that is one distinction. Um, you know, how, how we measure that success and we are an evidence-based outcomes driven organization. So there's definitely a lot of things that we do that are procedural that will probably bore a number of you. So I won't go into too much of that, but I think we measure success in a number of ways that youth advisory council is critical because that's real time. You know, it's not only, qualitative data because our young people can share with us, you know, the successes of their relationships with their bigs, which are our volunteers that work with them throughout that match relationship. Uh, So I think our youth advisory council is one component, but it's also through the work of our families, um, how we, we measure successes. Are we seeing people still wanting to join the organization? And and time and time again, are we seeing a big who may have been a, I met one gentleman who's been a big for over 40 years. Um, I have a really good colleague that I met through through our Divine Nine partnership. And he's been a big for 47 years. He's had several littles. So I think it's through those relationships of talking with bigs that for me, that's how I measure the success of the work. When we talk about our Jedi work specifically, how we measure that, again, it's going to be ongoing, right? So everything that we do, it starts with what's happening locally. Our local agencies have always been doing this work. I'm just the conduit to be able to kind of box it and package it up pretty like (laughs) to be able to then say, here are some additional resources. Here are some of the things that I've been hearing from you, XYZ community, that you say you need to be able to support those relationships between our bigs and our littles. And so for me, it's just the facilitation of how can I be a resource? That's how I measure success. If folks are still coming to me and asking for more, that's for me how I know that we've been successful at being able to share our Jedi youth empowerment work and then being able to advocate and ask those questions and tough questions, albeit, to our staff, where where can where can we fill some more gaps in, and the same with our young people through that youth advisory council. What are we doing that maybe we should stop doing? What are some things that we did not think about that could be innovative to help make that mentoring relationship even more meaningful and impactful? So hope that answered your question. It does, and it leads me to another question. So yeah, <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. So with that, is it more where your the organization is having to customize? per region, um, you know, a program going into versus, north, you know, uh, Southwest, East, West, West Coast, are you seeing there's variance in, um, like you have your foundational um, principles and things that you, you'll bring to the table and want to implement across the board, but do you see that, okay, um, this doesn't work in the West uh, because this culture or this environment is, is not dealing with this as much, even though you deal with a lot of issues these days and more so than uh, when we were in our youth, but, um, or we're still youthful, but uh, <laughs> the demographic <laughs> that, you, that you're working with. So right. <laughs> no implications that time is uh, <laughs> not still youthful. But um, so with that, do you see where you're having to shift per region um, to, to meet the, you know, the community 
and, and make it so it's more effective. And I can ask it a different way if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, the answer to that is, and again, the, the beauty and the, of the model of Big Brothers Big Sisters is that our local agencies, we give them a framework, right, to, to work within. But the beauty of Big Brothers Big Sisters, and this is why our local agencies are, are so dynamic, is that they can then innovate those programs to be able to work, make it work for the community. So we may have a program like the Relationship Responders Program, right? That That's just a framework. When we then are allowing our, our, our agencies to be able to take that framework and innovate from it, it allows them to make sure that it's culturally sensitive and, and hum we have that humility for that region. So maybe if we do have a program that, you know, is packaged in the Southwest, they're able to tailor it. And even from within the Southwest, we may have three agencies in Arizona, as an example. You know, northern Arizona communities may be serving a, a mostly native population, and then maybe southern Arizona may be more hybrid between our native and Latinx communities. And so there, we are able to allow our agencies, right, through that innovation, to make that program what fits for the community that they served. And that's the beauty of Big Brothers Big Sisters is we don't dictate, we work together and collaborate. And so we're able to take any program model and allow that uh, freedom to be uh, innovative, uh, change it, make it its own. And we learn as the national office sometimes from our local agencies. It's not always the national organization saying, here's the program. Oftentimes it's the opposite. It's the converse. We're hearing from within our own network of agencies. Here's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to then build that up through a pilot program and then scale it so that we can share that amongst all of our agencies collectively. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I, I can talk for another hour and, and dive deep into everything. So what I want to do, and I want to be mindful of your time as we come to a close, is these last few minutes, share with us, um, if you haven't already, what's next um, from a program implementation, or if you want to dive a little deeper into the JEDI uh, program or Youth Advisory Council and how that's going. Uh, share with us some upcoming wins and, and, and developments that are coming out of Big Brothers Big Sisters. Yeah, you know, there are, I would say, so many exciting things happening right now um, with our new leader um, being able to innovate. We have a national conference coming up soon. It's our virtual conference this year. So that's happening in June. So I'm really excited about our national conference that's actually themed Jedi, which is, um, you know, makes a lot of sense for the work that we're doing. So I'm really excited about that. We've got some great partnerships right now that are coming out of our resource development department. Um, you know, I've mentioned earlier a great win with the relationship responders through our partnership with the Starbucks Foundation. Uh, you know, and I think another plug perhaps is, you know, I host a series of, of my own conversations with folks and we call that the Race Relationships and Resources National Conversations webinar. And so at least once a month, we host that on our own Facebook page. And that's an opportunity for me to you know, have those deep dive conversations. Oftentimes I hear from folks that just ask the question, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to talk about this. It was never something that I, I, I was brought up learning. You know, I, I want to understand more about different cultures, different experiences and this work. And so I think, you know, as we continue to innovate that program, that is another area that's, I would say, a win for us. We continue to make it better. 
uh, program after program, I always feel like, you know, couldn't get any better. And then in the next month, we do something that just blows my mind, right? So a um, couple of weeks, we'll be doing one on Asian American Pacific Islander Awareness Month. That's the month we're in right now, May. And we also, it's also Mental Health Awareness Month. And that's critical for our work too. I don't want to, um, I feel like I haven't spoken enough about our trauma-informed care work through a partnership with our youth protection department. But because it's Mental Health Awareness Month, we're going to be talking about the traumas and strategies to help support our Asian American community. And uh, then June will be our Pride Month conversation. And I'm really proud, I would say, those are two big wins of, I don't think we would have done this a year ago because COVID wasn't around, um, we probably would have just kept talking with our, within ourselves. And so I'm very proud of that work because we're talking to our community and folks that may have never known who Big Brothers Big Sisters is. Maybe they didn't know that we are welcoming and affirming of all communities like our LGBTQ folks. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud to be able to start to share uh, to your question, Orlando, what, what are we doing? What are our wins? What, um, what is meaningful? for all of the communities that we serve, for the young people that we serve, having those conversations with them. I think for me, that's a big win, is starting to share externally with folks all of the wonderful things that we do every day. Um, I can't take a lot of credit for that. It's our local agencies who really are doing the hard work. They, they keep me inspired. Our young people keep me empowered to do this work, uh, to wake up early, stay up late, and, and keep going. Awesome. Awesome. And last question, because uh, you brought it up, <laughs> is you mentioned the the Facebook uh, conversations that you have. What's that community? Is it all um, DNI practitioners, and is it where you're you're kind of sharing some best practices? What is that? Share a little bit more about that. Yeah. So on our uh, Facebook page was just BBBSA, right? Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. That's our Facebook page, and so it's you know I'll say a team. I don't. I can't take full credit. Um, we always have some inspired panelists. So our AAPI webinar is I'm going to be joined by other experts. So we always try to have at least one thought expert in a particular area, right? Um, so that will, I'll be joined by Sonia Aranza uh, and Christine Carino as two of our external thought leaders in the AAPI space. And two of our staff members, we have a leader, our uh, Dennis Brown, who's our leader of BBBS of Hawaii. And then also Elaine Cha out of our St. Louis office, which is Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri. And so we're going to come together to talk about what the last year has meant for our Asian community. And, uh, you know, with COVID, they've suffered through that pandemic, just like our black and brown folks. Right. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the mental health uh, that oftentimes we don't think about our Asian community in, in the same light as our black community. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, the anti-Asian violence that was experienced throughout the pandemic and most certainly historically. Um, but with that, we're, we're then going to talk about the, the positive side. How do we support our community of, of Asian Americans and those who identify uh, as part of the Asian diaspora? And so the, that panel, I think, will, will give folks a taste of what um, we're all about, which is inclusion creating that sense of belonging. So I kind of, I step back in those conversations because I am not Asian, <laughs> right? So um, I'm allowing the facilitation of that conversation to flow, talking about how we can support our young people who may be experiencing that trauma or violence, um, the ongoing issues that the Asian community is facing. Um, and then similarly for our LGBTQ conversation, we will also have 
Um, I, I'm so I can't take too much yet because we haven't promoted it. But sneak peek for those who are listening um, is more facilitation, allowing space for folks that are of that community. That's why I love that session because I'm not an expert in all things race relationships, maybe somewhat resources, but we're always bringing folks together of that community and highlighting our work. And I'm, I'm really excited about our LGBTQ panel. Um, I'm, we're bringing to the table some amazing, powerful speakers, experts, and um, you know, I'm gonna share the mic with them. I'm gonna take a step back since I'm not the expert in those conversations and allow them to teach me, lead us as an audience, and to hopefully grow and unlearn some of the things that we may not have realized we had as a bias. I love it. Thank you uh, so much, Tanya, for your time, your wisdom, uh, and your insight and expertise. Uh, it is safe to say a Jedi's work is never done. <laughs> that is so true. May the fourth be with all of you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, don't go away. I'm a put you into the background, just close out and then wrap up with you. But again, folks, uh, follow Tanya Gibson. It's G-I-B-S-O-N on LinkedIn, not G-O. That was my era. Uh, follow, follow this dynamic woman in the work that's being done with Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And I look forward to actually joining one of those calls on Facebook so I can um, I can get educated and learn and see what, uh, what other uh, professionals and experts are, are talking about as well. So I look, I look forward to that as well. So thank you again, everybody, for joining in. I look forward to seeing you on next week's uh, call. And be blessed and have a great night. Thank you. Music.